This episode is brought to you by Current Events. Looking for a way to make your curriculum more relevant to students' lives? Current Events is a great place to begin. Students can read, listen to, or watch news stories about a particular topic and then share what they learned in a variety of ways. Or take it a step further and turn your students into the news reporters. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to tune in today to Meet Me on Planet 3. I am your host, Deanna Hoffman, a parent of two young children, an experienced science educator, and an environmental advocate. The Meet Me on Planet 3 podcast features actions that folks like you are taking to protect and preserve our amazing planet Earth. For podcast episode 8, I spoke with Barbara Moran about her role as an environmental journalist for WBUR, Boston's local national public radio, NPR station. The interviewer became the interviewee. Barbara explained how she remains an impartial reporter by choosing to side only with humanity and the planet. And a team of Provincetown's Center for Coastal Studies have pulled up 13 tons of lost and abandoned fishing gear from the bottom of Cape Cod Bay this spring. The annual cleanup takes place when fishing boats are banned from the bay to protect migrating right whales. WBR's Barbara Moran reports. This year's haul included three anchors, about 180 lobster traps, and tons of plastic rope and nets. Plastic in the ocean is a known issue. Laura Ludwig runs the Marine Debris and Plastics Program at the Center for Coastal Studies. She says plastic junk in the ocean breaks down into bite-sized bits that whales and turtles eat. So we are often looking for uh, ways to remove macroplastics before they become microplastics. They're a lot easier to remove when they're big. About a ton of the recovered plastic rope will be set aside as raw material for artists. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Barbara Moran, thank you so much for meeting me on Planet 3. Great to be here. The last time I saw you, you were doing a talk to my eighth grade class. We were doing an environmental journalism project, and you volunteered your time to come tell them what it's like to be an environmental journalist, and it was incredible. And then when I started this project, I thought of you immediately because I felt like I was trying to be you. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought, well, I should probably see if she wants to do an interview. And I thought you'd say you weren't available. So I was super excited when you wrote back and said that you were. Oh, well, that's so nice of you. I wanted to see if you could talk similarly to what you talked to our students about, a summary of your job as a senior producing editor for the environment, what it entails, some information about your reporting on climate change and the environment. So my name is Barbara Moran. I'm a science writer. And right now I'm the editor of the environmental team at WBUR. WBUR is the local Boston affiliate of NPR. And a few years ago, a group of listeners came to them and said that climate change is the existential crisis of our time. And we need to be hearing more about this from the news media. And then BUR raised the money and they hired a team of three people, me, which was a reporter editor, and then two 
reporters. And our job is to cover environmental and climate change stories that are happening in Boston and Massachusetts and in New England to some extent. And we especially look for stories that are locally relevant, but have national resonance. So for instance, one of my reporters just did a story about a neighborhood in Revere up on the North Shore. And this neighborhood, it's always flooded all the time, but it's getting worse and worse because of sea level rise and climate change. But the people don't want to leave. They love it there. And they have this like really, really strong community. And this personal, local, immediate type of story, I think resonates with a lot of people because people understand these conflicts about whether you know, should we stay? Should we go? What do we do? I don't want to go, but can we stay a while longer? And and that sort of story is lo- a local story, but that's happening all over the country in different places. We also focus a lot on environmental justice. An environmental justice community is a community that's overly impacted by pollution and climate change and usually is also lower socioeconomic status or many, not many native English speakers or a lot of communities of color. So there are a number of environmental justice communities in Massachusetts, and we have been trying to call attention to issues in those communities. One example of that is there were plans to build a wood-burning energy plant in Springfield in a neighborhood that already has a lot of pollution in this city that has really high rates of asthma. And my reporter, Miriam Wasser, did a lot of coverage of that. And, you know, kind of wonky in all these like regulations about building it. But in the end, it's this, this human story about where we're choosing to build these things and should we be building them at all. And interestingly, you know, when I started this job, there wasn't that much climate coverage, you know, in the mainstream media. And in, in fact, there was so little that the Columbia Journalism Review started this consortium called Covering Climate Now, where they would try to get all the you know local stations around the country and newspapers to sort of band together and agree to do like a, a week of climate change coverage or, or a couple of days of climate change coverage, just to sort of saturate the media with climate change for a week. And this seemed like a really good idea a few years ago because nobody's doing it. And we did it. And it's funny because we did it again this year around Earth Day, but it almost doesn't seem as necessary now because just in the intervening years, I feel like the public's awareness of climate change has really gone up and the media's has. And there's been a lot more hiring of climate change reporters among media outlets. And now two things happen. I think it was the wildfires really brought it home to a lot of people because that was such clear evidence with the heat and the drought and just the huge extensive, you know, extensive wildfires. And, and then the, not only the visual of it, but people being able to, unable to breathe. And the fact that we could see the smoke here in New England. And then the pandemic, you know, the sort of the connections that people were making between air pollution and climate change and rates of COVID in certain neighborhoods, I think that really connected the dots for a lot of people. So I think these stories, when they're sort of connected to people and their immediate real lives, it becomes much more real. So how do you choose your stories? It sounds like clearly there's a human element, but how do you pick and choose which ones to report on? 
Yeah, it's really hard. Um, I mean, it's a constant sort of fire hose of ideas coming in, right? We have this huge, long story list of things that we should cover. And we try to juggle it around. And sometimes there's something that rises to the surface and, and we do it. But it, it is a, a constant discussion among us. I mean, certainly because we're a radio station, if there's a really good speaker, something really that sounds really interesting, then that helps. If there's an interesting human element to it, then that's helpful. If there's actual news happening, that's helpful. But a lot of what we do is just listening to people, poking around, seeing what's happening, going to meetings and listening in. And we have informational meetings with people just to pick their brains. Miriam, our reporter, lived in East Boston until recently, and she noticed all these flyers around her neighborhood in East Boston about this controversial electrical substation being built. And that ended up being a big story for us. So a lot of it's just keeping your, your eyes open. And I mean, I think there's a ton of stories that we want to do that we haven't got to yet. Yeah, I don't know if we, we always get it right. Because <laughs> we're always feeling like we don't do enough. And if we had 10 reporters, we could fill all of their time with stories that we should do. I've met some people during my interviews that would probably want to work. You could hire them. <laughs> Young people that are very interested in journalism and the environment. So yeah. <laughs> if you ever need any names, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because being an environmental reporter is not being an environmental advocate. And I think there's a lot of confusion among activists who think that we are on their side. And we're not really on anybody's side. I mean, I guess we're sort of on the side of science and humanity and the planet. But this is a kind of story we don't do. Interest groups who come to us with a particular angle or a product or something that they want to promote or sell as a solution for climate change. And so that's the type of thing we don't do. We look at big picture solutions like batteries. You know, there's an issue with you want to have more electric cars and you want to have wind power and all this kind of stuff, but you, to do that, you're going to need much better batteries. So we do a lot of stories about batteries and how to make better batteries, but we would not promote one group over another. So we do have to be sort of walk a line there and be careful because activists come to us with these stories and they're disappointed when... <laughs> We don't pick them, but they're just not journalistic. I mean, there's a false balance sometimes, too. We're not saying climate change is real, but here somebody says it's not real. Like, we're not going there. Climate change is real. <laughs> right? That's not the question. There is a lot of questions about exactly what we should be doing. And there's a lot of debate and a lot of points of discussion that people need to be thinking about that should be part of the national conversation. There's a limited pot of money to spend. Should we spend money on this? Should we spend money on this? Those are legitimate debates that are happening. And those are the stories we do. That's so complicated. I always saw you as an advocate for the environment because to me, your stories result in change. Maybe there's a better way to describe what your stories do because I was going to ask you, how do your stories influence change? But maybe that's not the right question. It is a fine line. I mean, we are advocates 
for the environment. Everybody wants clean water. Everybody wants clean air. I think we can all agree on that. People like trees. (laughs) People don't want the planet to, you know, burn up. Nobody likes fire. Nobody likes asthma. I mean, I think there are points of agreement we're all on. But when it comes down to specific things, it's not our role to take a side because there is legitimate debate in certain things. Like, should the city of Boston get electric buses for school buses? I actually don't know the answer to that. I know that's something that people are debating about. Should the city of Boston institute composting for all households? Sounds interesting. I mean, but I don't actually know. Does that, how much would it cost? Would that actually work in an apartment building? And does composting actually save a ton of greenhouse gases? Would that money be better spelt elsewhere? If that makes sense. So I guess we are advocates for raising awareness about these questions. (laughs) It's hard to bust through the news. I mean, you look at like the media landscape. I mean, it's like Red Sox, Marvel movies. It's just this constant stream of like entertainment and distraction coming at everybody all the time. And to be like, hey, hey, how about let's talk about composting or you know what I mean? So I feel like anytime we can sort of bust through and put something about climate change into people's brain, that is a victory. So over the rest of the day, if somebody somewhere back there, they're thinking about composting or they're thinking about sea level rise or they're thinking about electric cars or batteries, then we've done our job. How did you become interested in environment and journalism? I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. And then when I was in college, I really wanted to be a sports writer. So I did a lot of sports writing and I got out of college and I ended up getting a job at a senior citizens magazine. I was like a feature writer, right? It was like totally random. And so it was fun, whatever. And I was doing all these features about seniors doing stuff. And I ended up doing a bunch of like medical reporting. And I felt like, wow, this is really important, but I actually don't know what I'm talking about. And I really would like to become better at this sort of coverage. So I went to graduate school. This is like 25 years ago now. I got a master's degree in science journalism. And I spent the time taking a lot of science classes. And then on my own after that, I went through a whole program at Harvard Extension School and took a lot of basic chemistry and biology, molecular biology, um, just to sort of up my game. So for a long time, I was a you know general purpose science writer. I mean, I like I just really like talking to scientists because they're just super psyched about their thing. I just like being in labs and going out with them and talking to them. And I like the challenge of translating complicated science for a general audience. And, you know, I was always concerned about climate change and environmental stuff. And I'd write about environmental things along with everything else. And then 10 years ago, I was taking a chemistry class. So we're talking about how When carbon dioxide is absorbed into the ocean, it makes the ocean more acidic. And that causes trouble for shellfish because if it's too acidic, then shellfish can't make their shells. So we did this calculation about at what point does the ocean become so acidic that there are no more clams? And I'm like, okay, it's like a home. And then like I came up with a number and I'm like, holy crap this is actually going to happen. 
this could actually really happen. We are doing this now. I'm doing this as a human. We're killing the ocean. We're going to have an ocean with no clams. And what is that going to do? And then I remember sitting there and like almost crying. (laughs) And then it's like racism. Once you see it, you see it everywhere. And once you see climate change, you see it everywhere. And so that's when I really started to cover it in earnest. And I felt like every story I do should be about climate change, you know? And now I also feel like every story I do should be about climate change and racism because they are intertwined. And so as I, as I do that, that's sort of how I've grown. And so that is our goal to see these intersections of how all of these systems come together and end up leading to exceptional harm, usually on, you know, these certain groups of of people. Basically, the world runs on this idea that you take stuff out of the ground and you burn it to make energy, and then you put the waste somewhere. So you take oil out of the ground and you make gasoline out of it and you burn the gasoline to run your car and the pollution from the car goes into the air. Or you take the oil out of the ground and you send it to a refinery and they burn it and use it to make plastic. And the pollution made from that goes in the air and then the plastic itself goes into an incinerator or goes into the ocean. So they call that process extraction and pollution. So the extraction usually harms the people where it happens and then the pollution harms other people. And almost always those people being harmed don't get the benefits in the middle. They call them like sacrifice zones. And because of our history in this country of, you know, institutional racism and redlining and, you know, people being shut out of the democratic process, the neighborhoods with the worst pollution are most often communities of color and poor communities and in every type of pollution. Trash incinerators, where you put nuclear wastes, where you put air pollution, where the polluted water is, you know? The factory farms. Right. It's not an accident that the big trash incinerators are in a poor neighborhood. I mean, it didn't just happen that way. It was, it was made that way. And, it's, and it was made that way by institutional racism and by a disregard for the ultimate effects on our planet. Scientists are pretty conservative, generally. They're not alarmists. And everything they've said about cli- all their predictions have come true so far. Anything else... I didn't think to ask that you think might be good to share or any advice you would give to maybe students listening that are interested in pursuing a career in environmental journalism. It's easy to get really depressed when you sort of cover these subjects, but I feel a lot of hope now, especially with the the young people. I feel like the young people get it. Like they get it and like, I don't know how they, how they figured it out, but they figured it out. And it gives me a lot of hope to see them pushing this to the fore. And it's because of them that it's on Biden's radar. They're doing it for a lot of people. You know, you feel discouraged, like what you can do, but the more of us that are thinking about it and talking about it and putting pressure on elected officials and voting and keeping it in the spotlight as much as possible. It's great. And it's good to 
remember that it's about people. That's where scientists fail sometimes is they get sort of, you know, swept up in the numbers and everything. But if we remember at the end of this, you know, people are affected and me and you and everybody else around us, we are in it together. Keeping people first when you think about these issues. I mean, there is also one thing, there's a lot of, I think, valid criticism of the environmental movement that they only care about rich white people and their favorite animals. So I think that there's a needed change to happen in the environmental movement and in the coverage of it to really put people first and to put the people who are most harmed or most in danger of harm first. Barbara, this was awesome. Thank you so much for meeting me on Planet 3. Well, I'm not going anywhere, so if I can help you in any way, let me know. It was great. Take care. Thank you to Barbara Moran for taking us into the world of environmental reporting and for leaving us with so much hope. Thank you also to WBUR for allowing us to air one of Barbara's radio news segments. This was the first of a Meet Me on Planet 3 special series on environmental journalism. Join me again for episode 9 when I speak with Eve Zukoff, an environmental reporter for Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and the Islands. To summarize the key points from today's episode, number one, climate change and environmental issues are human stories. Number two, the best type of environmental story is locally relevant and also resonates with folks nationally or globally. Number three, the news is saturated with stories about politics and sports and entertainment. So anytime an environmental reporter can break through and put one of their stories into people's minds, that's a win. And number four, climate change and institutional racism are inherently linked. And climate education and environmental reporting are also about social and racial justice. Thank you for taking the time to meet me on Planet 3. Subscribe today, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, and check out my blog at meetmeonplanet3.com. And please email me with topic suggestions or questions. Deanna at meetmeonplanet3.com. That's D-E-A-N-N-A at meetmeonplanet3.com.